promises, promises, I'm all through with promises, promises now. I don't know how I got the nerve to walk out. If I shout, remember, I feel free. Now I can look at myself and be proud. I'm laughing out loud. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 2nd, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back from Provincetown. Did you have a good time? I did. Thank you. Thank you so much. See a lot of uh, Broadway people up there. I'm seeing all these Broadway postings from uh, on Facebook and Twitter from up in Provincetown. There were so many. Uh, there was uh, Marilyn May, whom I went to see oh. perform there, uh, and you know, as fabulous as ever. But also, gosh, uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Kevin Cahoon, um, uh, Bob Mackie. Uh, and I didn't see him, but I heard that Doug Sills was in town. So, yeah, it's a, it's quite quite a wonderful vacation spot for for theater types. Excellent. Uh, uh, just a little housekeeping here. Keeping up on our calendars. Don't forget that your Tuesday, September eighteenth, is booked because you're going to be at Fifty Four Below seeing the best songs cut from the best musicals sung by the best singers who never sang them at Fifty Four Below. Oh. Isn't that right, Peter Felicia? That's exactly correct. Yes, indeed. I'll be emceeing a, a, a production, shall we say? Well, at least a, a concert, an evening, um, an extravaganza. Well, we'll we'll see if it uh, hates that term. But yes, we'll be um, taking a look at songs cut from musicals, um, not because they necessarily were bad. No, they weren't. Sometimes they just don't fit. Sometimes the show's running long. Sometimes the original performer can't sing them. Sometimes there's no time to get the performer on to sing them because there's a costume change. A lot of reasons why songs are dropped. So, um, and we'll surprise a lot of people by uh, coming out with a great number of songs that will uh, certainly tickle their fancy and move them too, we hope. But uh, yeah, um, 7 o'clock and 9.30, and we look forward to seeing you at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below on Tuesday, September 18th. That is sounds phenomenally interesting, and I'm going to try to get out there at least for the 7 o'clock. 9.30 might be a little past my bedtime. Yes, I suppose so. So, <laughs> so uh, it is uh, in the United States here, Labor Day weekend, uh, and I was wondering if I could pose to the both of you, uh, what are our favorite Labor Day moments in uh, on Broadway shows? <laughs> so Peter wanted to talk to us about what kind of Labor Day moments we have. <laughs> what immediately comes to mind, I, I'll admit, is not a particularly potent one. But um, in Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, um, one of Little Chap's uh, affairs comes with an American woman who sings a song called All American How She's an All-American This and an All-American That. And uh, she points out that her mother warned her that if she fools around too much, 
you'll only be sorry on Labor Day, which of course doesn't mean the holiday, but <laughs> when you go into labor for your indiscretions. So, uh, but um, labor, I, I guess, what immediately comes to mind, I don't, I don't think it takes place on Labor Day, but certainly the Clifford Odets play Waiting for Lefty certainly had a great deal to do with labor relations. And um, it was really... Uh, supposedly an amazing opening night and it's one that i often mention um, when people say what well, would you go back and see but on uh, march 26 1935 supposedly people were so moved when the people on stage were yelling strike 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 that indeed they started yelling it in the in the theater too so that must have been a, a pretty powerful night and um it it does deal with um taxi drivers and all that which is kind of interesting today because of course we're having a lot of issues here in new york and probably other places too with taxi drivers uh being forced out by uber and lyft and um some of them have even committed suicide so maybe this is another play to take a look at um during these uh, troubled time for taxi drivers but um, yes, as I mentioned in the trivia question recently, the Pajama Game movie opened uh, on Labor Day. And I guess that wasn't accidental. Um, I really think the studio executives were paying attention to what was uh, going on in the real world and said, well, considering the fact that there is a, a strike in the Pajama Game, uh, and it's a big story about labor versus management with, of course, labor being Babe and management being Sid, and they have a relationship only um, he's going to wind up firing her because of this. Well, um, <laughs> I think they knew what they were doing by opening it on Labor Day, and um, so those two things come, three things, if you will, come immediately to mind. I think to myself, uh, why haven't we had uh, more productions of the Pajama Game around? And I looked at IBDB, and there was one in 2006, so 12 years ago, not too long ago. Uh, yeah. but A very I, successful one, yeah. Yeah, I wonder why we don't see it more often in the regions or in concert or something like that. Uh, I wonder there's probably been some sort of Pajama Game at 54 Below at some it point. It was done... Uh, it was done recently in D.C. Uh, I, I forget if it was Arena. Oh, Arena Stage, right. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Michael, what do you, you have any Labor Day-related uh, uh, information? Well, it's it's amazing. I, I just realized that I've had several of them come up uh, in my theater-going experience recently because I just re reviewed for Talk and Broadway, Days to Come, the Mint Theater production of Lillian Hellman's early play, uh, one of her most obscure plays, I would say. Uh, and it's that's theoretically about uh, a labor strife in a Midwestern town. Um, the problem with that, with this play, in, in my view, in, in a nutshell, is that it, it actually doesn't deal enough with that. It, it gets more involved in the personal uh, peccadilloes and, and problems and issues of the central family that, that owns this brush factory where uh, where the, where this labor strife is happening uh, but it uh, there are many other I, I at the end of my review I, I made a quick list of other shows plays and musicals that deal with with uh, labor strife uh, you know union versus management uh, etc and it was amazing how quickly uh, so many of them popped into my head without me even ha having to think about it for very long. Uh, Peter's already mentioned Waiting for Lefty. We recently discussed The Cradle Will Rock. 
uh, which is a, a very seminal piece on that subject. And uh, Pajama Game, yes. Uh, Newsies, more on that later. Um, there, there really are uh, quite a few of them. And uh, sometimes some of these plays are, are considered agitprop. Uh, I, I, I think many people look at Waiting for Lefty that way, which is not to say that it's also not a great play, because I, I think mm. it is. Uh, but it's uh, interesting to look at the range of types of plays and musicals that have dealt with it. Obviously, in Pajama Game, uh, it's maybe not dealt with in, in such a uh, serious manner as some of the others, although, it, you know, I mean, it's it still is. Uh, um, it's kind of the the engine of the of the plot of the pajama game and yes there there are lots of fabulous dance numbers and jokes and and all that but when it comes right down to it these these workers are uh it's really important to them to get this seven and a half cent per hour wage increase um and so uh oh and you know Mm -hmm. as of very recently we had Lynn Nottage's Sweat on Broadway, yeah. which, uh, you know, in retrospect, I, I think I, I like the play even more than, than when I saw it. I, uh, there were some issues in the writing, but overall, I thought it was really, really well done as far as the way that uh, she examined the uh, how how uh, labor issues can can put a huge rift between people who are. Uh, you know, formerly really wonderful friends. Uh, it, it's uh, it was a very sad uh, and moving play, and just a, a, the latest uh, that I can think of in a, in a long line of of plays and musicals that deal with that subject. So uh, that is Labor Day that is happening here in the United States uh, this weekend. We also got some uh, some news the other day that the Village Voice has ceased publication, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which you know sort of um, is tangentially related to Broadway and Off Broadway because of the Obies, and we're unsure of what's going to happen with the Obies and with all the folks uh, who long worked at the Village Voice, probably the most high profile, Michael Musto. Um, and uh, certainly, Michael he's writing- Feingold, Michael, Michael Feingold. Feingold, yeah, certainly, yeah, certainly, sure. uh, who, who's been um, thirty-five years, I would guess, uh, something like that. Um, a phenomenal critic, uh, an amazing mind, uh, a, a critic who is also. Um, <clears throat> translated works uh, has uh, everyone from uh, everything from Happy End to Andorra, uh, really a, a tremendous uh, theatrical presence. And I dare say he will not be silenced because he's just too valuable to the theater community. Um, <laughs> I can think of very few people who have the historical background and breadth of uh, Michael Feingold. And for that matter, um, he certainly has the common touch too, because he's been known to post on all that chat. And whenever he posts on all that chat, anybody who's on all that chat, I urge you to post, uh, to click on what he has to say, <laughs> because it's always, always, uh, illuminating to the nth degree because he, again, this historical background, he really knows his onions and his potatoes and his relish and everything else. I mean, (laughs) this guy is one of the greats. And under those circumstances, I really do believe that he will surface uh, somewhere and somewhere significant. 
Yes, I hope. I certainly hope so. And he, he has definitely hung on. Uh, bravo to him. They, they. Uh, I remember years ago they they cut back his uh, space in the paper. This is when it was still primarily a, uh, a print publication, and then he hung on through that. And I think wasn't he actually let go at one point and then brought? He was. Up? Yes, that's right. That's yes. Right. So uh, you know, it's it's been it's been rough for for many uh, people in journalism and and other related areas and uh, and and theater journalism in particular, but, but someone, yes, absolutely. With that kind of depth and breadth of knowledge, they, they just have to be given some kind of a forum, uh, uh, you know, if not, we're all much, much poorer for it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, yeah, the village voice just been such a, a, uh, anchor for the arts, uh, over the years for it to be, uh, basically what they're, what they have announced that they're doing is they're basically archiving everything so it'll still be available online, but no new uh, uh, features, reviews, news will be uh, created for that right now. The, the current owner of the Village Voice is saying that he's still trying to work out a way to bring it back in some form or another, but uh, these are trying times right now for any journalistic enterprise to uh, make some money on the Internet. So... Um, very sad to hear that, but we wanted to mention that as well. Let's uh, get into our reviews here. Uh, Peter, you saw uh, Hershey Felder's Irving Berlin at 5090's 59. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, Hershey Felder, I, I believe, started out um, as a pianist and uh, then segued into performing uh, as an actor. But um, I don't know if he's done this for his other shows. He's he's done a number of one-person shows where he has um, uh, <laughs> channeled, let's say, uh, George Gershwin and Chopin. And um, so a lot of people – now he's trying um, Irving Berlin and – I don't know if he's written his other shows, but he's certainly written this one. And he's done an extraordinarily good job of uh, encapsulating Irving Berlin's career. Now, that's not an easy thing to do because it was a long career. Um, a lot of people think, wow, it must have been because he lived to be 101. Well, not quite. Um, that was the career because um, essentially he um, became very reclusive and Hershey Felder makes no secret of that. And uh, he became very reclusive and – Really, after his failure of um, Mr. President in 1962, that was basically it for him, except that he came back in 1966 and went out with a bang by writing a new song for Any Get Your Gun, An Old Fashioned Wedding, one of his favorite quad libets. Now, that's where um, we'll use names here. Ethel Merman, as Annie <laughs> Oakley, sang um, sang part of the song. Um I should have started with Bruce Yarnell as Frank Butler started the song singing this section. Then Ethel Merman came in and sang her section and then both of them sang together. This was certainly a Berlin trademark. He certainly did it um, with uh, in Mr. President uh, with empty pockets and a heart full of love. And he did it with Call Me Madam most famously with You're Just in Love, um, which was the song he actually wrote in the road. Um, and um, so here we are. And um it's Christmas Eve, and what's happening is, and this really happened, people used to go and carol in front of the Berlin house, which is at 17 Beekman Place. 
And they used to um, sing White Christmas. And what's happening on this particular Christmas, the last Christmas of his life, is that um, he's having an argument with himself about whether or not he should let the carolers in because they come every year. And um, wouldn't it be nice to invite them in since they take the time and energy to come and serenade him with White Christmas as a tribute to his writing? Um, arguably his most popular song, though I guess a lot of people would opt for God Bless America too. But anyway, this is the argument he's having with himself. But as time goes on, we also find out during a flashback, of course, that uh, Christmas was a very painful day for Irving Berlin. I won't uh, disclose why, but it really was um, a terrible irony that the man who wrote White Christmas had one of the worst Christmas that anybody could ever think of having uh, some years before for that. So um, I do think a lot of people are going to think that uh, the show is, you should pardon the expression, I, I offer an apology before I say this, too Jewish, because Hershey Felder um, has the mannerisms, uh, gives the mannerisms of a, a Lower East Side Jew, which indeed Irving Berlin was. Now, I <laughs> never knew Irving Berlin. I don't think I've seen any particular footage of him being Irving Berlin. I've certainly seen the footage of him singing, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, one of his songs um, when he was in the army, which there's an interesting story about that, too, that Hershey Felders tells that he went to his commanding officer and said, you know, we should put on a show. But uh, I write at night so I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning. So uh, you're going to have to excuse me if you want this show. And of course, they wanted the show and it turned out to be very successful. So um, so it really is um, a very, very riveting hour 45. And he certainly doesn't um, skimp on the fact that. There were flops along the way, including Mr. President and Miss Liberty. And um, he does only one selection from from that. But uh, he really could have uh, – this isn't a flaw. I'm just saying he really could have made more of the fact that Andy Get Your Gun was a smash hit. But um, he doesn't and uh, because he really wants to give so much time to what else happened in Irving Berlin's life. And it was quite a life even though – he was pretty reclusive uh, from the time that he was in his late 70s till, till the time that he died. Um, doing a little research last night while writing about it, I noticed that September 22nd, uh, which is fast approaching, was a significant uh, day three times in Irving Berlin's life because his Music Box Reviews, which opened the Music Box Theater, which he half-owned with Sam Harrison, later half-owned with the Schuberts, um, opened on September 22nd. And then two years later, another edition of the Music Box Review opened on September 22nd. And then in 1989, at the age of 101, he died on September 22nd. So anyway, this is a worthwhile event, and it was so nice to hear so many people responding to what was going on. I don't think I've heard so many mmms when certain names were mentioned or certain songs began. At some point, Hershey Felder does say to the audience, sing it with me. And they joined in, and it's really very effective when something like that happens because it is positive proof that the songwriter has done his job well, that, that people in the audience know the lyrics and can go right into it with him. So uh, a, a very worthwhile enterprise. Um, and uh, despite uh, Hershey Felders having a terrible wig, um, it's a very good evening. <laughs> you know, I, I've said this a few times. Every time we talk about 59 East 59, we're talking about these gems uh, this I thoroughly just, agree. I thoroughly agree. We have we, we, who is 
who's the art is, is there an artistic director who's programming in this are these rentals and they're just curating it so well that some are like... some are some are yes indeed um no um a, a woman um named val day is currently the artistic director there um she took over when uh, the other peter tier i'm sorry wasn't it Peter Tier before? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so uh, he really got it going. And it really has become such a destination. And <laughs> yesterday when I was there um, and I uh, pressed the elevator button to go downstairs to the men's room, um, I pressed it too late and it went upstairs. And there were uh, so many people crowding into the elevator because they were seeing another show there. There are uh, so many different spaces there with so many different offerings. And um, I'm really looking forward to the uh, to Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night, which is being dramatized there, which uh, uh, because Kurt Vonnegut is um, of that generation. He's a great interest to me and while it's unlike any of his other novels to be uh, frank um, and doesn't have the the wit or tries to be I'm still looking forward to seeing that and again I'm not sure that there are many places in the city where we could see something like Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Ninth in 59 59th well uh, another jewel if you go just uh, let me see five blocks south and about <laughs> 10 or 15 feet below the ground, you're going to get to Feinstein's 54 Below, where Michael saw Newsboys sing Alan Menken, the Newsboys' fifth anniversary reunion, reunion concert. So, Michael, tell us about that. Yes, on uh, Monday, August 20th, they did two shows, uh, one at 7 and 9.30. I went to the 9.30 show. And as the title indicates, this is the, the fifth annual reunion concert they've done it one every year for this is the fifth year uh this um edition had such newsies alumni as Stuart zagnet ben fankhauser damon j gillespie alex wong joshua collie and giuseppe bausilio uh music director caleb hoyer produced by shoshana feinstein feinstein uh, and it's always a really great show. I don't know if you guys have seen any of them. They they get various Newsies alumni to come back and uh, sing. Uh, usually, uh, I guess, numbers from the show itself. This time it was a broader canvas, uh, as, as per the title. Um, Newsboys sing Alan Menken. Uh, so not only Newsies, but, but other famous Menken shows, such as Aladdin and... Um, little shop uh, in fact one of the uh, best moments of this concert was the opening number um i presumably it was put together by the music director caleb hoyer it was a mashup of it's a fine life the 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 well not quite the opening number but the first big uh, ensemble number from newsies and downtown uh from little shop and it's really interesting to hear them uh kind of go go from one end to the other and then back again and just dovetail because uh, there's similar types of numbers in terms of the the beat and the and the and the general feel of them and and it was uh, i had, i don't think i had ever heard those songs put together before but that worked really well also um everyone in it had a had a wonderful moment uh or two um Giuseppe Bausilio did a beautiful version of Proud of Your Boy from Aladdin. And 
Ben Fankhauser uh, did another mini medley, if that's the word for it. He uh, sang uh, Santa Fe from Newsies, which uh, was not his number originally because he played a different character, but he sang Santa Fe from Newsies into Out There from Hunchback of Notre Dame. So uh, th- th- this was this was a really wonderful night. The Newsies, uh, in my experience, has one of the biggest and most enthusiastic fan bases of really any Broadway musical I've ever seen. I think the show closed uh, sooner than it needed to on Broadway, and we've discussed that before. Probably won't, not much point in getting into it now because it's a long discussion, but I think uh, that it could have lasted quite a bit longer. Uh, They decided instead to close it on Broadway and and bring it out on tour. Um, But uh, so all those people, uh, I mean, who did get to see it on Broadway, uh, they they love it and they love uh, th- there was you know uh, there's there's been a great organization of among the fans and they keep in touch with each other and they they try to go to all these reunion concerts. But also um, Newsies has become very popular in the regions and as it happened, I just went to see uh, just yesterday, uh, September 1st, one of the final performances of the Engeman Theater uh, in production of Newsies, the John W. Engeman Theater in Northport, Long Island and I'm very glad I got there. I, I just, scheduling did not permit me to get there earlier, uh, so they were kind enough to let me into one of the final performances, and it was a really excellent, solid production, as as all of their shows are. Uh, I want to uh, let's see, the, directed by Igor Golden, choreography by Sandalio Alvarez, who just did, both of these people did a really wonderful job in. Uh, you know, uh, in, in the style of the uh, original staging choreography that we saw on Broadway, but but they still made it their own. And uh, the Engeman is a really interesting place. Uh, uh, my uh, friend with whom I went to see the show and I both noticed that about three quarters of the cast are, are non-equity members. Uh, so they do mix uh, union and non-union, <laughs> going back to our previous discussion. But... But the shows are so professional, um, and I did want to signal out in this uh, show Dan Tracy, who played Jack Kelly, because he he is someone who looks like he's really just starting out. He doesn't have many credits yet, but you are definitely going to hear from him. He had the the um, the acting ability, the phenomenal voice, also the the baby face that I think really helps uh, somebody playing that role because these newsies historically were supposed to be very, very young uh, and it helps the story if, if they look that way. So um, it's too late uh, to see the Ingham and newsies um, unless you get there within the next hour or so. Um, but, uh, but please um, keep the, the company on your, on your radar because they, they really, do wonderful shows and everything uh, you can count on everything that they do being just very well done, very professional coming up. They have uh, man of La Mancha elf uh, buddy, the buddy Holly story gentleman's guide to love and murder. And then Aida will be uh, the last show of this current season. So that's um, newsies at the Engelman. Okay, so next up, uh, Peter, you got to see a play called Private Peaceful at TBG Main Stage on 36th Street. So tell us about that. 
Well, uh, Michael Morpurgo wrote a novel, Warhorse, that of course became a, a big hit in London uh, and here. Uh, it ran substantially longer in London than here, though the run here was terrific too, and um, and was then made into a movie. So this is Private Peaceful, which is again based on a Michael Morpurgo novel. It isn't um, written by him. Uh, Simon Reed is the gentleman who adapted it and directed it. Well, um, it's a one-person show, and Shane O'Regan must play no fewer than 24 characters, though most of the time he's Tomo, um, and he's a young boy who lies about his age to get into the army where he's going to be um, in the middle of the First World War. And it's really a harrowing experience to watch what happens to this very nice, very naive young man who really means well. But, you know, the problem with the army, and um, I hate to say this, but in a strange way, it's the uh, the armed forces are the closest thing we have to slavery because, of course, you have very little say in what you can do or not do. You have to follow orders, and that's it. Um, should you not follow orders to uh, some degree, um, you're going to get dishonorably discharged, and that's going to make life much harder for you when you apply for jobs and all that. Of course, this isn't on the mind of Private Peaceful at the moment because uh, he's not worrying about his future. He's worrying about his present because it's not a case of Biloxi Blues where Matthew Broderick is a bit of a, um, an incompetent and says the wrong thing at the wrong time. It's not simply that. Private Peaceful doesn't intend to remain peaceful. He is certainly going to bring up what bothers him. And if he feels something that the army is doing is stupid, he's going to use that word. So you can imagine what he's in for as a result of this. In fact, you may not be able to imagine what he's in for as a result of this, but it is pretty harrowing what happens to Private Peaceful. It isn't peaceful at all. And um, the irony of that last name is certainly not lost on anybody who goes to see this show. Um, I'll tell you one of the problems, though, with the production, uh, which has nothing to do with um, Simon Reed's adaptation or Shane O'Regan's performance, which is marvelous, marvelous. But unfortunately, the space that he's in... Um, has a bit of an echo, and so sometimes it's hard to really understand what he's saying, partly because sometimes he's using uh, Irish accent, uh, Cockney accent, I think even a German accent at some point, but the thing is, it sort of bounces off the wall a little unpleasantly, so... It's uh, it's a little sad that um, that he's in this space, and you know, since Warhorse was such an amazing success here, and uh, certainly got a first-class production at Lincoln Center, uh, it's a little sad that this um, production should be in this um, small space on Thirty Sixth Street that doesn't serve it well. Um, but uh, if you can get past that, and you know, <laughs> I do find that whenever I have this type of difficulty it only seems to last for about mm, quarter of play a third of the play no more than a half the play because somehow your ears do adjust to it um when people used to talk about jessica lang being too soft in her various shows uh i i realized that after a while people listen harder and they adapt to it so maybe you'll adapt to this too but i really wish that there were a better show place 
for um, both director Simon and and adapter Simon Reed and um, Shane O'Regan, who <laughs> really does a phenomenal job. So that's Private Peaceful. Okay. So uh, we'll have a link to the Private Peaceful website so you can check out more about that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you have uh, been traveling, as we mentioned at the top of the show, and haven't weighed in on Pretty Women, but uh, I'd love to hear what you had to think about it. Well, uh, it just interests me so much that whenever a show like this opens, there's uh, another, yet another debate about uh, musicals adapted from movies. And some people uh, seem to think this is the worst thing possible that could ever happen. But, uh, you know, I think we always have to be careful when we try to make broad statements like that because there were so, so many exceptions. And uh, as I think we brought up before, arguably some of the greatest musicals have been adapted from movies. Um, Hairspray is, is one that leaps to mind. And, and, and uh, many people have noticed, uh, mentioned that in a way, My Fair Lady is adapted, adapted more mm. from the screenplay of mm. Pygmalion than from the play. So those are only two of, of lots and lots of examples. But I think um, you, so, as I said, you have to be careful when you make broad statements like, oh, well, people should do this and people should not do that uh, because it's going to be good or it's going to be awful. Uh, but. Um, I think what it comes down to really is the inspiration and what, what is the impetus for the adaptation. It does seem like now so many of these properties that are chosen for adaptation are chosen just because they were so tremendously popular. And it's more a, of a, um, a, a cash grab or a, you know, a, um, a franchise or a marketing thing than uh, – then writers coming along and saying, oh, you know, I, I, we really think we could add to this story by adding songs. Uh, and one clear indication of this is that so many times now uh, the projects do not originate with the songwriters uh, and the, the book writer of a musical, but uh, they will originate by some corporation announcing that a uh, that a famous famous movie is going to be adapted to the musical stage, and then they will pick the creative team, uh, and then uh, you know only after that, obviously, they'll pick the cast. So I um, I think that that is uh, the one general statement that we can make uh, about what is good for adaptation and what isn't. But also I think, uh, that how, how slavishly or not the musical follows the original screenplay can, that can partly, uh, determine how successful or not the property is going to be. And there was, uh, there were some moments in, in Pretty Woman. I have not seen that movie since it came out and I only saw it once when it did come out. So I, only had the, the 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 most general memory of the plot and the characters, but there were things that even I noticed. Like, uh, gosh, there's this moment in the beginning where the the uh, central male character Edward Lewis uh, he borrows a car from a friend. Um, I'm not sure why that's what happens, but anyway, he borrows a car and then he uh, goes driving and uh, then he gets lost. And uh, he starts asking directions, and that's when he encounters Vivian, uh, 
the male main female character um, in this show. Uh, uh, Edward is played by Andy Carl and Vivian by Samantha Barks, and this is where they strike up a conversation. But it's like. It, it, even not remembering how it was done in, in the movie, I, I could see, see clearly, it seemed to me, that m- most of that must have happened in the car because uh, what happens in the musical is, I guess, because they didn't want to spend the money to have a car on stage, he uh, he gets out of his car in the middle of L.A. and walks around and starts asking for directions. And then he meets Vivian and then she starts uh, – Telling him that he he's he doesn't know how to shift the car properly, um, and this is to show that she is no dummy and she's a, actually a really smart woman and she's not just a a hooker. Uh, but I I don't know. It just uh. seemed to me so obvious that it was really really weird for that for her to be saying that he didn't know how to shift the car when they weren't even in the car at the time, um, and little things like that that it seemed to me could have been really rewritten without a whole lot of effort and people just didn't put the time and the effort in. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I, I think try a little harder if you're going to do something like this. All right. So, um, the interesting thing about pretty woman, uh, beyond what we talked about in the last couple of weeks is that, uh, pretty woman got not so favorable reviews across the board. But is right. doing stellar business, whereas yes. uh, two other new sh- new musicals to hit Broadway recently, getting the band back together, just announced it's closing this week after dismal box office sales uh, since uh, it it opened up on Broadway and Head Over Heels, which got mixed reviews, but also has uh, high profile people involved with it, but maybe not on stage. Uh, or also have very low grosses, and I can't imagine it's going to hold on much longer with low grosses that it's had, but it hasn't made an announcement yet. Um, Do either one of you have, you know, thoughts on uh, what this magic formula that Pretty Woman seems to have captured in the bottle? Well, it the other two, of course, have no uh, <laughs> movie profiles. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it does seem to indicate that uh, there is a point to having a, a brand name because uh, Head Over Heels would seem to have an advantage by having music by the Go-Go's, which was a popular group once upon a time, and there should be some fans left over. When I was um, in Boston talking to the people at the Colonial, the Emerson Colonial Theater, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Uh, and they were saying that uh, the advanced sale for Moulin Rouge was terrific, but what was so interesting was that so many of the people who were coming were uh, 25 to the 34. That's what the demographic was. And they said because uh, they grew up seeing the, the movie either um, when they were little kids or um, on video. But um, they really said that there, there were more 25 to 34s than the usual standard 40-ish something female uh, theater goer. So um, I, I guess people who um, feel that movies shouldn't be made into musicals are going to have a, a tougher time um, making their argument when indeed getting the band back together and head over heels aren't doing well at all. Now, the, the worth of the shows is another situation. 
and um, but I don't know that um, Pretty Woman is so much better than those other two musicals. Um, but again, you know, it, it's it's um, so I I really can't fault people for trying to do what's going to be profitable. Um, so so be it you know <laughs> uh, i i do think that if it's uh, a good show even without the branding and certainly dear evan hansen and certainly even more impressively to me come from away has proved that it can be done if you're good and it can be effectively argued that head over heels and getting the band back together weren't good um they they did lower the bar in many instances and wanted to appeal to um an audience that um may not be the loftiest and under those circumstances they got themselves into trouble apparently while dear evan hansen and come from away again no stars one was made a star granted from dear evan hansen but there was no stars when it started out um so they they had the same disadvantages in terms of marketing but look what happened. Because those were quality works, they stayed around. So for all the talk of you know uh, slam bang fun evenings and all that, apparently there's an audience who wants to see something more serious in musical theater, and and not just um, low vulgar jokes and uh, silly situations uh, where you laugh at the musical and not with the musical. A uh, an ex neighbor of mine, a former neighbor of mine, Richard Wallace, has apparently developed an algorithm uh, that uh, tries to predict how successful these kinds of musicals will be based on the various uh, specific elements of them. How uh, how popular the original film was, who is writing the adaptation, who's producing it, uh, who is starring in it, and uh, there was uh, an article that was just done on this in Forbes, and I'm going to send it along because I think it's really interesting to to read it. Um, I, I found it a fascinating article, so I'll send that, James, and maybe you can put a link to it. That's the Mark Hirschberger article? Yes, correct. Yeah, we talked about it extensively on Today on Broadway last week. Oh, you um, did? Oh, yeah. great. And uh, and so uh, it's uh, – Matt and I – you know, we, Matt and I are, you know, big stats guys, big math guys, and <laughs> and but we talked about how, you know, so many of the arts, not just Broadway plays and musicals, but all, everything in the arts has such an X factor that you can't really quantify this. And uh, no, of you know, course it, not. It, it's yeah. so it's so interesting through the years. Uh, this is he he is not the the. The writer, uh, your n- former neighbor, is not the first person to try to develop this sort of uh, uh, algorithm that can predict what we do. But, um, right. you know, uh, I, I always think to myself, um, Nick and Nora, on paper, <laughs> on paper, Nick and Nora look like it could be like a runaway hit. And sure. it, it totally failed miserably. So I wonder... If you can put these algorithms through some of the greatest, you know, flops uh, that were to happen on Broadway and, you know, Spider-Man, U2, uh, Brand New Theater, tons of money, Julie Taymor, you know, Mm. what kind of enormous flop that that was. So, Mm. uh, uh, you know, it's interesting to talk about, but... uh, 
but I thought that they they might have been placing too much uh, faith in in the Forbes article on <laughs> on math. Well, I did. I, it, it reminds me of computer dating. I remember when my friend Victor um, uh, filled out all those forms for computer dating, and when he met the the girl, he agreed that they everything that they put down, everything they put down was absolutely accurate, and it is true that they had this in common and that in common and this in common and that in common, but they just didn't feel any chemistry and didn't like each other. So, yeah, that's true. All right, so. Um... Last Sunday, just as we were wrapping up the show, uh, Matt Tamanini uh, had texted me and said uh, uh, the terrible news that Neil Simon had passed. And fortunately, I was able to grab Peter before he headed out for his matinee on Sunday to talk about it on uh, today on Broadway for the Monday show. Um, but I wanted to see uh, if we had, you know, a week of reflection here. What was the, you know, maybe the first... Neil Simon's show that you saw, Peter, which one was it? Well, it wasn't the original company, but it was the national tour of Barefoot in the Park with the then unknown Richard Benjamin as Paul and the then unknown Joan Van Ark as uh, Corey and the very much known Myrna Loy as uh, Corey's mother. Now, (laughs) What was interesting is the playbill, at least in Boston, uh, at the Colonial Theater, which was the Colonial Theater then, um, simply had a picture of Myrna Loy. Not in costume, just a, a, a headshot of Myrna Loy, uh, looking elegant and lovely, as she always was. And, uh, and and ironically, I thought of her a second ago when uh, Michael mentioned Nick and Nora, because I remember Arthur Lawrence telling me, he said, you know, the problem was um, Nick and Nora really were William Powell and Myrna Loy, and they just um, um, they they were the ones who re- really made those characters tick, and um, they, they made them uh, extra special. It was very hard to capture that. And he admitted he couldn't capture it. Back to Neil Simon. So anyway, uh, Barefoot in the Park, uh, which was in uh, this colonial theater with 1,646 seats, a very different circumstance from the Biltmore where it was playing on Broadway, uh, which had about mm, 900 seats maybe. But boy, I will never, ever forget um, after um, Paul has to carry his mother-in-law up that flight Mm -hmm. of the five flights of stairs, not including the stoop. And uh, they landed on the couch and they were just out of breath and huffing and puffing and it went on for seemingly forever and we just were convulsed at how funny it was so that was my first neil simon that was in october of 64 and then in february of 65 shortly thereafter the odd couple was trying out in boston after its break-in in wilmington so it came to boston and um the at that point the ending was very different uh, at that point, it was simply a here we go again ending where another poker player didn't show up one night and suddenly they called his wife and the wife told him that uh, the poker player and um, she had split and the doorbell rang and you knew here we go again that somebody else was now going to move in with Oscar and uh, and that was going to happen. And the here we go again ending is one that has been around for a long time and even in 1960 had been around for a good 30 to 40 years and while we all laughed we knew that we were seeing something we had never we had seen before many many times and that's why neil simon really wanted to work hard and change it and uh now the odd couple ends more with oscar um taking on a few aspects of felix that he didn't expect to take on and we see that he's been changed by him so that's always a good idea to have a character change 
change. But um, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, James, because uh, I've talked to so many people this week about Neil Simon, uh, even on Australian radio. But um, what was really shocking was hearing the line about um, uh, when Felix left the note for Oscar saying that he was leaving and yes. F you. Um, and uh, it took me a long time to realize that F you was Felix Unger. And a lot of people have alleged that indeed, um, that was a very convenient thing for Neil Simon to do, that um, make the guy named Felix Unger so you could get in the F.U. joke later. No, Felix Unger is actually a name that Neil Simon uses in his very first full-length play, Come Blow Your Horn. He's mentioned offhandedly as an upstairs neighbor. He doesn't show up. It's just mentioned. So obviously, Felix Unger was a name that struck Neil Simon's fancy, and he thought it was funny. Um, he liked uh, the way it sounded. Um, he, he thought it was comical, and therefore, that's why he used it for Odd Couple. But we cannot say the tail wag the dog with the Odd Couple in that FU moment, because really, check out, go ahead, take it out of the library, look on your bookshelf. If you have come blow your horn, you're going to find Felix Unger in there. I wanted to, uh, I don't know if you guys, I know Peter probably doesn't watch much TV, but Michael, uh, have you ever heard or seen House of Cards? Uh, the I, I've heard of it, but, uh, but I too uh, do not get to watch. Yeah. Well, it's at the theater. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, it's not a value House... judgment. I don't want anybody to think it's a value judgment because I am told. No, no, no. Golden no. age of TV, you know, in terms of these series. So it's not a value judgment. It's just no time. Go ahead. So uh, uh, in House of Cards, there's a, uh, uh, a character called uh, named Frank Underwood that was actually played by Kevin Spacey for many, many years. Uh, and uh, Frank Underwood is a brutal politician who uh, takes, who fights with everybody, and he's he's brazen, and uh, he has cufflinks that say "F you," and he gives them to people he doesn't like. So, uh, uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> I wonder Excellent. if if that writer, the writer of uh, House of Cards, let me see who is the main head writer. Uh, David Fincher, let's see, Bo Willimon. Oh, Bo, uh, Bo Willimon yeah. created it. Go. Sure. So, so I wonder if Bo Willimon did that as a little homage to Neil Simon. But <laughs> very well be, yeah. I think that's I think that's uh, very a very uh, astute perception. Well, Peter, <laughs> you've mentioned that that fu that Felix Unger before, uh, and uh, I mean, who knows? It's possible that that joke was uh, originally intended for, uh, did you say, uh, which play? Come, pl- come blow your horn. Blow your horn, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe it was intended for that, and then he decided to save it. But God knows that has a reputation. That has, it, it, famous as one of the biggest laughs in Broadway history. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I uh, I didn't get to experience that one uh, myself, at least not in the original, original production. But I remember a line... Uh, from Broadway bound that's, and and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I couldn't find a a copy of the script, but uh, Kate Jerome and and Eugene, her son, Eugene are having a wonderful uh, discussion at one point, just really, uh, really intimate, wonderful discussion between mother and son. And she's talking about how uh, when her parents 
came to America, you know, through Ellis Island. And, and she talks about how the, you know, the boat uh, was sailing into the harbor and they saw the Statue of Liberty. And she says, and they started to cry. And she says, do you know why they started to cry, Eugene? And he says, well, of course, they, they started to cry because they were free. And she says, no, they started to cry because my father looked at the Statue of Liberty and he turned to my mother and said, we are in trouble. That is not a Jewish woman. <laughs> Frankly, one of my favorite Neil Simon lines actually doesn't come from a play, but comes from a movie version of one of his plays, and that is The Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Now, this is a play about a middle-aged man who's experiencing a middle-aged crisis. He's always been faithful to his wife, and you know, suddenly you know, the sex is a little boring. It's, it's taken its toll, and he's starting to look around. All right. In, in the original play, as done on Broadway, um, he... he deals with a customer in his seafood restaurant. Uh, the second one is a hippy-dippy type girl that he picks up in uh, Central Park. And the third one is actually um, somebody that he's known for years, that he's been friendly with the husband and she's been friendly with his wife, but um, they're thinking about going at it too. Anyway, in the movie... Alan Arkin plays the role and he's driving in his car and he looks out the window and he says, look at all those pretty girls. All those pretty girls. When I was young... There may be two, maybe three pretty girls. Now they're all pretty. And the reason that's so good is because it's not the case that all the girls today are pretty. It's the case that he's older and young looks pretty to him. And I think that's a terrific perception. So, um, yeah, when Neil Simon was on, he was really, really something. And we got so spoiled thinking that we were going to get one of them every year. Yes. Yeah. And and also people have been asking me lately, what was the first Neil Simon play you ever saw? And I had to think about it for a minute because I, I never actually thought about it in those terms. And I realized it was Promises, Promises. It was the original Broadway production of Promises, Promises uh, with a uh, replacement cast. It was a fellow named Gene Rupert as Chuck and uh, Jill O'Hara's sister, Jenny O'Hara. Right, I remember that, yeah. Yes, as Fran. So uh, that was my first. And, and it's so fascinating that... Uh, I mean, only a, a quite a small fraction of Simon's output was as a musical uh, book writer, but he was so good at it that he could have made his entire career doing just that as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and with Promises, Promises, he took quite a leap because what he did was uh, have uh, Chuck Baxter directly address the audience. And sometimes that can be very dicey and very dangerous and come across simply as a narrator. But it didn't. I mean, we were so in love with Jerry Orbeck's performance, yes. Um, but also the character was just so endearing in the way that Neil Simon wrote him. So uh, occasionally he would turn to us and say, I'm in trouble, you know, that type of thing. And we would care so much about him uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the second act in fact where he's getting dreadfully drunk because his life has been shattered because he finds out that Fran Kublik is not all he expected that she was um, <laughs> he turned to us and said I don't want to talk about it I'll call you tomorrow and it was just such an endearing thing you know you felt so bad for him and yet you had to laugh at the fact that uh, he was going to call us tomorrow when of course he wasn't um, so yeah, again we could go on a lot with some of our favorite Neil Simon lines, needless to say. But um, uh, <laughs> I'll give another one, uh, whether you like it or not, uh, The Gingerbread Lady. Um, now, this was a play that was trying out in Boston where I was living, and um, I actually thought about not going because the reviews were putrid. And, um, <clears throat> and then 
they announced they were closing in Boston, and that's when I had to see it. I mean, I don't, I don't understand it either. But anyway, <laughs> so, but by the time I bought my ticket deal, Simon said, "No, no, no, we're not closing. We're not closing. I think I could find a way of fixing it." And that was really wonderful about him that he never stopped. He always thought it could be improved, and I went. And this was um, about a lot of you should pardon the expression losers. And uh, people who just haven't been successful, including an actor played by Michael Lombard. James Coco did it in the movie, so you might get a sense of who he is, uh, who's never had really big parts. I mean, usually he plays the guy who delivers the telegram, uh, the guy who delivers the flowers, um, that type of role. So anyway, he finally gets a good role. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Finally a good role. And the other people are having good uh, experiences too, so they decide to have a party. Well, wouldn't you know, on the night of the party, everybody's uh, good news has turned into bad news, including this actor, who indeed was fired. Uh, and as he said, I was fired by a 19-year-old producer who was eating a Tootsie Roll when he fired me. And it was so something, he said, come on, Evie, saying to uh, Maureen Stapleton, the gingerbread lady, come on, Evie, you know I'm good, you know I'm good, you know I'm good, you've seen me on stage, you know Oh, I'm good. And she said, yes, yes, really. When you ring a doorbell, the house comes down. You know, again, because that's all he had was roles like that, you know, where he simply rang doorbells, delivered the telegram and was off stage. Uh, so that's a terrific perception as well. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I treasured Neil Simon. And when I was teaching high school, directed the third act of uh, Plaza Suite with future Tony winner Susan Hilferty. Yes, she won for costumes for Wicked, but she was quite an actress as well. It was really terrific in that third act of Plaza Suite where the girl just will not come out of the bathroom and driving her mother and father crazy. And Susan was terrific <laughs> as, as uh, the wife, the mother. So, Michael, uh, we th you and I went back and forth and talked about uh, a, a new concept for this week on Broadway. We'll do a musical moment. So we came up with one for this week, or you came up with one for this week, about Promises, Promises. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, I just thought it, it would be nice to sample uh, one of the several hits that Neil Simon had as a book writer of musicals and of course uh, I mean this song was written by Burt Backrack and Hal David but this is the moment that Chuck Baxter has at the very end almost at the very end of Promises Promises where he has his epiphany and he's going to uh, get out of the uh, this really bad situation in which he's found his, him, himself and he's going to find true love and so uh Jerry Orbach, of course, uh, created this role in, in, in very, very mem memorably, and people still talk about the performance. Uh, there is some footage of him in the role, specifically in the song She Likes Basketball, uh, which you should definitely look up if you haven't seen that. But the title song of Promises, Promises is, um, I, I think – uh, a really important moment in musical theater history because that show was groundbreaking in several ways. Uh, and I'm, I think it's wonderful that Neil Simon was involved in it in that he, uh, you know, he was at the height of his powers at the time. And, uh, and to show us again that he could be such a, a wonderful musical librettist. And I, I only wish that um, there have been two or three of him, so he could have written uh, more musicals in addition to all of the, the fabulous plays that he wrote and screenplays, etc. And by the way, this dovetails into what we were talking about earlier about movie adaptations, because here's a movie adaptation, but 
again, yes. having Chuck talk to us directly made it different from the movie. So as a result, it was enhanced. It was, you could say it's improved or you might say it wasn't improved. Uh, that's up to you thinking that his talking directly to the audience was a good idea or a bad idea, but they didn't stand pat. They didn't just put the movie on stage and that's significant. No, absolutely. And I think we've mentioned before that uh, is sometimes seen as a lazy device to have a narrator uh, address the audience directly in a play or a musical or whatever. But again, there are no rules. It's, it's all how well it's done. And in this case, I think it's really important because Chuck, what Chuck Baxter is doing is very questionable. I mean, he's, he's oh, yeah. lending his apartment out to executives so they can use it to, to screw women and, and have a, you know, a behind the backs of their wives. Uh, so, I think it helps for him to address this directly in order for the audience to form a personal relationship with him and see that he's really not a bad guy. And it's just a question of uh, that he's in these circumstances and he does what he feels he has to do. It's also interesting, though this is not directly related to Neil Simon, uh, but I have to say it is the fact that Jerry Orbach, who uh, became Billy Flynn, a tough-nosed guy, and Lenny Briscoe, a tough-nosed guy, was playing a very sensitive guy here. And isn't it interesting that this is the one that he got his Tony for? Um, because, indeed, it was a departure for Jerry Orbach, who usually played guys with an edge. Um, he was Jigger in that Carousel revival in 1966. So uh, here he was. Uh, showing his sensitive side and boy did it pay off okay so that wraps it up for today before we get on to trivia i'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to itunes for you of course you don't have to listen to us in itunes or apple Podcasts. you can listen to us in many ways iHeartRadio plays us tune in plays us apple Podcasts, stitcher google play anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts you can get broadway radio shows really appreciate it if you go to itunes and leave us a good review um there yeah. leaving us a bad review is only bitchy so ah. uh <laughs> contact information for peter for michael and for me are on the front page of broadwayradio.com as well in the show notes and links to some of the things that we've talked about uh it can be found there as well so peter do you have an answer to last week's trivia the question was, the hit Broadway's musical's original leading man left long ago. The person who's now playing his role has the same surname. What are the two different first names, the same last name, and the show? Well, Ben Crawford is now playing the role that Michael Crawford originated in the still-running The Phantom of the Opera. Daniel Schwartzberg was the first to get it, followed by Greg Blazer, Deb Popple. Doug Strassler and Alyssa Marr. I mentioned them together because they're Broadway's cutest couple. Greg Christensen, Nikki Juven, Chris McGeehan, Joe Cross, Gabe Flores, Jack Leshner, Jeff Valenga, Robbie Roselle, Brian Kess, Josh Israel, Alex Lauer, and Chad Campbell. So that's last week. This week, an Oscar-winning film was made into a Tony-nominated musical. And yet... One of the movie's most famous lines, one that often shows up on the list of Hollywood's most famous film quotations, was neither used in dialogue nor lyric. What's the line, the film, and the musical? And by the way, I won't be surprised if there's more than one answer to this question. So you don't have to play Guess What's on My Mind as long as you've got an Oscar-winning film, a Tony-nominated musical, and uh, the line, that's perfectly fine with me. 
Okay. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm laughing out loud. Oh, promises, promises, this is where those promises, promises end. I won't pretend that what was wrong can be right every night. I'll sleep now, no more lies. Things that I promised myself fell apart, but I found my heart. Oh, promises, they're kind of promises, take all the joy from life. Oh, promises, those kind of promises can just destroy your Promises, my kind of promises can lead to joy and hope and love. Yeah.